Good morning. This is author Timothy Zahn, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. Good for you. Going for April 24th, 2018. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflog. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. And if you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. This week, Chip, this week there's so much going on. The weather's finally turning. And here we are, episode number 199. What? Next 199? Week? Yes, sir. 199. We'll have to start collecting some infinity stones then. Oh... <laughs> that would make us more powerful. It would. You could probably take over the universe, Steve. Film at 11. Brings us to our Film at 11, our movie of the week. You got a chance to see one of the biggest movies of 2018 so far before we get to the Infinity War. This is A Quiet Place. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this movie um, because this movie is the best movie I've seen so far this year. Wow. I would say out of a scale of 1 to 100, with 100 being the top, I would say 85, 90. So this is really, really good. Uh, this obviously stars the guy from The Office. Yeah, this is John Krasinski who wrote, directed, and stars in this movie with his real-life wife, Emily Blunt. So when he left uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, left the paper business, it looks like that he um, the world ended, mm-hmm. and uh, they had to go out somewhere, and they had to be very quiet, because there's monsters around, Steve. Yeah, I have heard some great things about this movie. There's a lot of people who really like A Quiet Place. All right, so the way I'm going to uh, explain it, the whole time I'm watching it, I just this is a, a message. I, th- I originally thought it was about a father. And about his caring for his family, mm-hmm. but really, I think it's parents and the, the caring uh, for their children, and you know, unique cir- circumstances. Um, if you wanted to compare it to some movies, I, I thought of M Night Shyamalan's um, Science. Mm, that's uh, a you, good one. So you know, if you remember that, there's a little bit of science fiction element to it, but really, that's not the the real story. Uh, and this is probably Mel Gibson at his best. I would mm-hmm. say he was the the father. His his wife died. He was going through a crisis of faith and just the the things that were going on with this supernatural element going on. I also thought of The Road, that movie. Oh, that was so hard to watch. That is that is a heart-wrenching story. Well, the, you know, the world was coming to an end and mm-hmm. the father and son are going for this trip down, I guess, to Florida. Hopefully. And, and Hopefully making it so that they can survive. And, they, and he's training. Yeah. Uh, training his son to, on, on being the man he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Well, this one has a lot of those elements. We've got a family, and it's particularly a father, who's trying to keep his family safe. There are things going on um, that he has no control over, and uh, he's using the resources they have to try to make their life uh, more secure and put them in a position to, to, to win the best they can in these unnatural circumstances. Mm-hmm. There is an, a, an event that happens early on that weighs very he- heavily on the father and creates some strain between the father and the daughter. Um, that eventually is resolved when um, when things happen and you recognize the love he has for his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly spends a lot of time with his son, also training his son you know, on, on what he needs to do in this very unique circumstance, you know, 
virtually the this dystopian world where it's coming to an end and he's got to keep these things, you know, his family safe and, and what he does for his wife. So I really, really enjoyed this. If you were going to a movie this week and you said, well, you know what? I, I don't want to go see a superhero film. This would be the film to see. And I think that we'll remember this at the end of the year. This, this could be best picture of the year. Wow. So would you recommend it for someone who's not a parent? Is this really speaking to that, that parent caring lifestyle? Well, I, I, I don't think that's the only element that's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're not, they, while they do use English and they talk to each other, they're very quiet. This is a, a movie that there's a lot of quiet. There's a lot of intense situations because you're in danger. Um, it's, not a, it's not a strict horror film in the sense this is not some uh, exorcist or anything like mm-hmm. that. This is much more of, I'm in a circumstance, mm-hmm. I'm scared, and we have to make adjustments. And so you know, we eventually get into like 450 days into this situation, and they're making do. They, they, they're, they're surviving. They're, they've put together their team, which is the family, and that human, and they're, they're uh, working to prepare themselves if something would happen I, I like I said wonderful movie all right go see that one you also got a chance to see the Isle of Dogs this is the Wes Anderson stop-motion animation film all right so Wes Anderson is very much like Tim Burton when you go to a Tim Burton film you know what you're getting oh uh, you know it yeah. you know it's black whites and blues right, right. Uh, sandworms that's right he's yeah. got a, uh, a palette that he uses mm-hmm. and Wes Anderson has a different palette that he uses much more uh, when I say muted colors pinks and, and all sorts of fun stuff this is a uh, odd film it's a very very slow driven film I was in this uh, the theater, and I had a four-year-old with grandpa and and the son there. Uh-huh. So, so uh, when I say Three the son, the, the the adult son. Uh-huh. So, dad was taking the the daughter with grandpa to this movie. I'm sure they thought, oh, this is a children's a children's film. film. It's it's animated. It must be for children. First of all, four four year olds can't sit still, uh, <laughs> which is no big deal. I mean, I I've been in, in plenty of movies with um, with young people, but this movie is slow. Yeah, slow. And and I'm sure if you love Wes Anderson films. This is perfectly wonderful. He's got a way of shooting films, uh, you know, the angles that he uses, the color palette he uses. This falls right into it. He's got a, just the most wonderful cast that's part of this. Jeff Goldblum's in it, and Jeff Goldblum is being, once again, he just plays Jeff Goldblum. That's we all it. just love being around him. Uh, so I, I don't think this is a great film, probably, uh, you know, 55, 60. Mm-hmm. And I'm being generous on there. This is not for everyone. I didn't say this is a bad film. Because if you like Wes Anderson, you're going to love this film. Mm-hmm. But for uh, most of our uh, listeners, I would say this is going to be a, a matter of taste on, on what you're willing to go through. So the idea is these um, dogs are, are bad. They get sent to this uh, island. And um, one of the gentlemen wants to go back and, and rescue his, his dog, his, this boy. And uh, anyway, things, things happen. In a very Wes Anderson-y way. Exactly. I got a chance to watch, from beginning to end, the entire new Lost in Space series on Netflix. So we, we, we gave a preview of this last yes. week, and you really enjoyed I the first episode. really enjoyed the first two hours. I kept going. I binge-watched this over the weekend, and boy, is this a great science fiction story. Again, it's all about family. It's mm-hmm. all about that team and working together 
together even when there are struggles in the team because there's uh, there's a lot of struggles in the family Robinson in this particular version of Lost in Space. It is not the cute and cuddly campy 60s. It is the gritty 21st century and a lot of peril happens in this series. Now, would you recommend this to the people who enjoy science fiction? Yes, this is definitely a science fiction movie, a 10-hour long movie. It is one story of this one family. And I would recommend it to those who enjoyed the old campy 60s version, too. It's not the same. It is different. But there's enough nods to its origin. And most of us have a memory of that origin. Uh, Dr. Dr. Smith, Smith, of course, (laughs) Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith is quite a different character in this. But the character is still that menacing and at the same time, comedic piece of this. Not nearly as comedic as the Jonathan Harris, well, Dr. Smith. There's always that conniving part yes. uh, when you're dealing with Dr. Smith. Whether you don't know it being helpful or, or sabotaging everything. You are never sure with Dr. Smith in this series or in the original. I loved this. I, I ate it up. I watched it and I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, I think that it's possible that they might be able to make a series after these first 10 episodes but they might not they might just leave it be the way it is it's certainly open to the possibility at the end all right steve i've got a thing for Paige davis yes do you, you do, do oh, oh my goodness <laughs> all right so anyway so tell us is, is Paige davis doing anything today Paige davis is back chip D- don't worry tune into tlc on saturday nights trading spaces is back on tlc we've gotten through three weeks now and it is just as good as you remember it is she still the bubbly she fun person beautiful. she is she's a wonderful pixie of a, a character ty pennington is there he's doing his construction he's a fun character too and trading spaces for those of you who haven't watched it the idea is two families in the same neighborhood switch homes so maybe i don't know chip and i could switch homes and you decorate one room in my home and i'll decorate one room in your home is that what it's about i thought it it was about uh page davis talking to us (laughs) yes (laughs) and beautiful outfits yes this is a great show i love it i i really enjoy the decorating ideas and the decorating faux pas oh my goodness some of the things that they do are just mind-numbing but it's on tlc go watch it opening this week there's so many movies opening this week oh my goodness let's go to the movie theater and all the theaters will have a different movie in them uh oh this week not so much all right it looks like there's a a bunch of independents that we're not going to talk about because really i think everybody cleared themselves out for um one movie steve avengers infinity war is here opening on friday previewing on thursday uh, I am excited about this movie. Well, in, in fact, they moved the, the release date up a week. Uh-huh. So uh, it's a, a releasing a, a week earlier than it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got this incredible, when I say incredible cast, I would say they've got 30, wow. 40 stars. Strong characters. Well, I mean, they, they, they've all been released in their own movies and, and they've, they've they develop these characters, and now they all come together to uh, protect the universe, Steve. This is a superhero film, for those who, who don't know that. <laughs> and I think it's going to be, um, I think it's probably going to win this weekend. I don't know why. I think this might be a billion-dollar movie. I think they might make a lot of money with this movie. The so, hype is is up on this one. So we have Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther. Obviously, um, I think that was the biggest-selling Marvel movie. 
movie? Yes, it is number three on the all-time movie-making list right now. Oh my goodness. All right, then, then you have Chris Pratt, Guardians of the Galaxy that no one cared about <laughs> until all of a sudden Until Chris... all of a sudden it, we did. Okay, and then yeah, you have Robert Downey Jr. who basically started mm-hmm. it all over. Uh-huh. Uh, you get Chris Evans, you've, you've got um, the gentleman who's playing Spider-Man, and, uh-huh. and the, uh, you know, obviously you've got the, the Hulk and Chris Hemsworth, and we have Scarlett Johansson. I mean, it just seems like it just goes on and on and on and on. And I don't think that it's going to suffer from having too many stars. We we wondered about that with the last few Avengers movies. If there's so many characters that we need to get a story from. Paul Rudd. Well, Paul Rudd's in there too, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, everybody's going to have like their, their little moment, I guess, is what's going to happen. And I hope that this is as wonderful as I think it's going to be. Oh, I think it's going to be uh, a big deal. Now, originally, this was supposed to be a two-part movie. They, they've changed it to one part, and it's probably because I think there's probably a lot of contracts that are up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's my guess. That's my guess. And um, we'll, we'll see how they, you know, what the fallout of this, because it's going to set up the next phase of the Marvel movies. Yeah, I, I think we should stay after the credits and see what the next phase of the Marvel movies is going to present to us. Hmm. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. And boy, Chip. I I have been telling you about this book since August of 2017. This book is one of my favorites of 2017. I, I talked about it in the end of the year podcast. I'm so happy to introduce you to our special guest today, Mr. Rob Reed, author of After On. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. I'm so beyond myself to be able to talk to you about this book. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say, Steve, thank you so much for recommending this book. I, I'm eating it up. I'm, I'm, I continue to working on this book. And um, Rob, I, I look forward to finishing it. So what we're going to do is we'll talk a little bit about some of the themes of this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, we won't spoil it for everyone because I, I do think that if you've enjoyed many of the other books that we've recommended, that you're going to just absolutely eat this up. Oh, yeah. After On is definitely in the genre that I love. I love science fiction that is based in real science. And Rob, you have created a story here where you are talking about real things that are happening. And because there's so many themes in this book, you have gone on and made this supplemental podcast where you've gone out and found some of the smartest people working in these industries to talk about these issues. I have indeed, and it's been an absolute delight. So let's tell our listeners about After On before we get to too many questions that get too deep. This is the story of Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, so um, a little bit about my background. I started an online music service, which was quite big in its day and was quite pioneering in its day. It was called Rhapsody. So I'm an entrepreneur, not really by training because nobody gets trained as an entrepreneur, but I'm an entrepreneur by many hard years of work. And um, I created that company and ran it through the high point of the first internet bubble in the late 90s, then into the early 2000s and eventually sold it. And we were right in Potrero Hill in San Francisco. Um, Prior to that, I'd been a venture capitalist and in between uh, the end of that, my, when I departed the company after selling it, um, to this very day, I've remained a pretty active early stage tech investor. So I do know Silicon Valley very well. I know the entrepreneurial process. I know the characters. 
I know all the stuff that goes on and that, you know, I'd say Silicon Valley itself is a major character in a sense in the book. So it's very present tense. I playfully say it's set nine seconds in the future. Um, so you have to read the whole thing within nine seconds of starting it or it'll end up in the past. Which is uh, very difficult because it's a very big book. It's a big book. It'd be tough to read it in nine <laughs> seconds. It'd be tough to read it, frankly, in nine hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's set in present-day San Francisco, and it's the tale of this really diabolical social media company called Flutter, and it's spelled P-H-L-U-T-T-R because we know how to spell in Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> yes. And um, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, the Seafy uh, channel. I'm familiar with that. Oh, Seafy. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's a, that's <laughs> wonderful. So, I'm so sorry. Taking out all the science or fiction from the channel and just calling it Seafy. <laughs> so, um, so that is Flutter, and you know, this is the only spoiler that we'll put in the conversation, but it's not really a spoiler because it's pretty evident from the very beginning of the book. About midway through the book, Flutter gains consciousness Mm -hmm. but rather than you know becoming a genocidal terminator bent on exterminating us all uh being a social network it becomes something quite a bit more frightening which is to say a hyper empowered super intelligent 14 year old mean girl um and that's basically (laughs) flutter's character when she attains consciousness and so that's playful obviously But there's a lot of very, very serious themes in it as well, things that really could pose significant risks to humanity. There's a great deal about super AI risk, uh, what happens if um, an intelligent computing system attains sentience and runs amok. There's a lot about synthetic biology and both the promise, the upside, and also the downside that we could face from that. There's a lot about quantum computing. Um, There's a lot about sociological issues like terrorism And in researching all of that, I interviewed a lot of fabulously smart experts that knew about things I didn't know. I knew a lot about core technology and entrepreneurial processes and so forth. I didn't know anything about neuroscience or consciousness. Uh, I didn't know anything about quantum computing. I knew relatively little about SynBio. So I interviewed all these brilliant people while writing the book. And as I was finishing the book, I realized, you know, I can't cram anywhere near as much as I'd like to about all these great fields that I've learned about. So why don't I re-interview some of those people and add a few more and come out with a limited eight podcast series to accompany the book. Now, I'm up to episode 25 right now (laughs) in my podcast, which has the same name. It's called the After On Podcast. So I'm up to episode 25, basically as I was coming up on number eight. I realized I was having way too much fun and learning way too much and talking to far too many fascinating people to stop. So I've kept it up. And you you tapped our good friend Tom Merritt to help you with the first eight episodes of the podcast. And, and the two of you worked really well together exploring some of these ideas, going through the book section by section, kind of like a book club for After On. And then you just sounded like you fell in love with the idea of podcasting and kept on going. Yeah, well, Tom is uh, Tom. I first met through my wife, who has been uh, was on tech TV with him uh, many, many years ago, and she she ended up hosting a TV show for over ten years uh, called X Play, which was short for Extended Play, and it was about the world of video games and video gaming, and it was on G Four, and so she and Tom go way back through these sort of tech journalist circles. 
And um, I'd always been a big fan of his work when he was at CNET and when he was working with Leo Laporte. And I'm a big fan of Daily Tech News Show. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started contemplating this, I was wondering if he could, you know, teach me a few tricks. And then he really graciously, I forget exactly how it came up, but through the conversation, the idea of us co-hosting those first eight episodes came up. And he was really wonderful and gracious about doing that. And so, yeah, it was very was and is very book clubby. So those first eight episodes are tied very explicitly to the novel, but it's not necessary to listen to the novel in order to listen to those episodes. Mm -hmm. You can just skip the last 10, 15 minutes when Tom and I tie the topic in the interview back to the novel and talk about you know, a 70, 80 page chunk of the book, which we do sequentially from episode one through eight. But Tom was critical to getting this thing started. So what sparked your interest in artificial intelligence? Well, um, I guess probably just starting to read a lot of the smart people fretting about it online. And this is something I think I, I like to give a lot of credit to Hollywood for you know, the, it's, it started out, you know, for, I think for all of us, we started seeing movies like Terminator and so forth that, you know, which a computer wakes up. It's pretty remarkable that Hollywood started exploring that theme way back in the 1960s mm -hmm. with 2001 A Space Odyssey and so forth. Because when you think of what a computer was capable back then, it was about as probable of a risk as werewolves, right? I mean, it was basically a fairy tale with right. a new kind of demon. But you know, whether through sheer genius or sheer accident or a combination of the two, um, the storytellers of the day did hit on a very real risk or a very plausible risk. Um, the author of 2001, I'd say it was through sheer genius because the book was written by Arthur C. Clarke, mm -hmm. who was a science fiction author who also uh, was a very good scientist. Um, but as Hollywood sort of took the theme and ran with it over the years, exposing all of us to it, war games and so forth, um, it, it kind of put a kernel in everybody's mind. And probably about 10 years ago, some really smart people, far, far, far smarter than me when it came to computer science, started talking about a very real possibility like this. And at first I was like, I, I reacted about the way that I, you know, react to serious fretting about werewolves, right? I was like, wait a second, these people are pretty credentialed and pretty brilliant. And I started diving into the issue and right about the time I started writing the book, which would have been, oh, let me think about this, probably 2014, um, it really had become uh, quite a fascination for me. And um, I'd initially, the idea was to tell the tale of an imaginary startup in Silicon Valley in a playful way. My first book had also been very playful, but also with you know, one of several deep underlying messages. And as I was getting ready to start this project, I realized I really want to put a sentient AI in the middle of this, but plug it into the actual real and true Silicon Valley and entrepreneurial world that I know so well. And one of those smart people that has been warning us about artificial intelligence was Stephen Hawking. One of my favorite quotes is he said, artificial intelligence is going to be the greatest and the last thing that humanity invents. That is yeah. scary. Yeah, it is scary. And in fact, my um, one of my initial interviewees, I think he was episode six, was a guy named James Barrett, who riffing off of that, wrote a very accessible general audience book called Our Final Invention, mm. uh, which actually came out after I started writing the novel. Um, but both he and Nicholas Bostrom, 
um, who is a, a, a Swedish philosopher based at Oxford, wrote pretty popularly accessible books. Probably I was about midway through the process as I was starting to write. And Elon Musk tweeted about both of them. Mm -hmm. and said, these are books everybody should read, which really lit things up. And so when Elon started talking about it, and Bill Gates has talked about the risk, sure. uh, he's talked about it very much on the record. Mm -hmm. um, and so when all those folks started talking about it, when I was, you know, maybe halfway, two thirds of the way through the book, um, I felt very vindicated <laughs> and like, boy, it would suck if Elon and Bill came out and said, what a stupid thing to worry about. But they said <laughs> the opposite. So how close are we to having an AI similar to your AI in After On? You know, nobody knows. Um, there are surveys that are carried out fairly regularly with people in the field. And I think Nick Bostrom's book, which is goes by the crazy title of superintelligence, he did a pretty rigorous survey. And he found that the range of answers of people who are deep in the field and very credible, and the range of answers uh, went from something like five years hence to a hundred to two never. But there was a pretty heavy spike in the bell curve around 25-ish years from now. Mm -hmm. So there's a diversity of opinion. There's some very smart people who say it simply will never happen. Calm down rank it with werewolves. And there's people who say it could be right around the corner. And the monkey wrench or a monkey wrench in this process, and one, I won't spoil it, but I'll just say that it's in the book. One that I played with is quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Quantum mm -hmm. computing, if it ever really, really, truly delivers on its maximum of potential, could change everything very quickly, could take make things, certain things, more powerful by a factor of trillions or more. Uh, unlikely to happen tomorrow, but it could happen tomorrow because there's, there's, it's just sort of like the Joker in the deck of cards. There's, there's a lot that we don't understand about it, and there's increasingly more and more smart minds working on it. So a sudden unexpected breakthrough in that could come along since we don't even know how human consciousness works at all. Right. Uh, a sudden unexpected breakthrough in you know backward pro propagating neural networks which are based on human brains or other things could take us by surprise um personally i do like you know the consensus view feels plausible to me i think it's at least a couple decades off but we just don't know all right so the, the world wide web is turning what 30 years uh old in 2019 yep has the access of uh, to information changed human intelligence and are humans yeah. smarter now than they were a generation ago? Yeah, I'd say we've been radically augmented. I think, um, you know, there's, first of all, I think it's called the Huntington effect, which mm -hmm. basically shows, on, on a, or, or is it the Flynn effect? It's the Flynn effect, which, yeah. which shows that, uh, you know, over the years, going back as far back as intelligence tests existed, the average human has gotten smarter and smarter and smarter. So there's just, from the very literal standpoint, are we smarter today than we were 30 years ago? The answer is yes, and, and that's been documented by whoever Flynn is. Um, <laughs> but going beyond that into something that's more worldwide web and information access specific, this is more of a figurative smarter. Have we gotten quote unquote smarter? The unbelievable proximity to information that we have now goes so far beyond what we had 30 years ago that anybody who is assembling 
a series of facts, who's assembling an argument, who's doing research, uh, basically has access to a power tool that the most powerful spy or corporate leader or president or whatever you know iconic figure you could imagine in the early 1990s or late 80s could only have dreamt of and therefore you know when i sit down and start making myself smart on a new topic that i'm going to cover in my podcast say i probably get and i don't think this is an exaggeration at all i probably get to five times the level of sophistication in a given chunk of time, let's call it 10 hours, than I could possibly have gotten even if I were sitting in the middle of the Library of Congress and had every scientist in the world on my Rolodex on speed dial because that's all we had was Rolodexes and speed dials back then. (laughs) Now, people do, it's very fashionable to say, oh, but we're getting stupider. We can't remember things because Google's always there to tell us. We've got our smartphones with us. Um, even if that's true and I personally doubt it, I think that's the kind of thing that people like to say on, you know, soundbite drive time radio. But even if that's true, who cares? You go all the way back to Greco-Roman times and you can, you can read about thinkers fussing about the fact that the written word was making people stupider because they could write things down. Uh, in the earliest libraries, there were slaves who basically functioned as card catalogs. And when the card catalog was invented, I think it was at the Library of Alexandria or the the ancient predecessor of it, there was enormous amount of fussing that, you know, these brilliant slaves that we've trained so well, their minds are just going to go to jelly. They're just going to sit around playing video games all day. Actually, they didn't work about that. But, you know, because we're not going to remember things anymore. Mm-hmm. And really, who cares? If, if the average teen has memorized no phone numbers, whereas when I was a teen, we all knew many phone numbers and, you know, 18 neurons are a little bit less muscular as a result of that. That is made up for thousands of times over by the proximity to information that we all enjoy. So I think it's made us way, way smarter. The ability to to phrase your question to the, to the search engine is the skill that we're looking for because we get frustrated if for some reason we can't find the question to get to the information that we're looking for. So if you were looking at how to change, you know, daylight savings time comes, how to change the clock in your car. Well, you may not remember that, but you know, there's a YouTube video that that can do that. But yeah, it's a fascinating time because you know, everybody's got these seven or thousand dollar computers hooked up to them and just can get to whatever they're looking for. You know, 10 years hence, everybody will have what would have been considered a supercomputer five or six years ago in their back pocket. When I say Mm -hmm. everybody, I mean people living in rural poverty in the Democratic Republic of Congo um, and everyone else. And so if we assume that world-changing intelligence is a very rare thing and it's randomly scattered throughout the world, if we don't think that there's a racial basis for intelligence, and I I certainly do not think that, You know, Einstein comes along every so often. Now, let's go back to the 1930s. You know, what were the odds? I don't know how many people were alive in the 30s. Let's say it was a billion and a half or two billion. And humanity got its Einstein. What were the odds that that person would happen to be living in a middle class situation in northern Europe 
And, you know, thank God he was born when he was because he was able to work very peacefully despite being Jewish in an area that soon became very anti-Semitic. But, you know, he got his important work done first and then he got out to the United States. What percentage of humans were living in a situation in which they would have had access to the sort of education that got Einstein to the point where he could do his earth-shattering work. And I think if we went back to the 1920s, 1930s, or whatever year he was born, probably shortly after the turn of the century or even before, it would be a single-digit percentage of people. Uh, most people were not even graduating high school, even in you know places that were relatively developed, like Europe and the United States. The vast majority of people were living in places with very, very minimal education. So he was, you know, he might have been in a four or five percent elite. And if he had been born as a street sweeper in Kigali, let's say, mm-hmm. um, he just never would have had the platform from which to operate, and he wouldn't have gotten the basic education that got him there. Now we fast forward. We still have billions of people who are not on the internet. And in 10 years, we simply won't anymore. And while Andover, Exeter, Harvard, and Yale will not necessarily have local offices in every single city throughout the developing world, anybody who is self-starting and has any kind of internet access, if they've got a rapidly intelligent and hungry intellect, they're going to be able to bring themselves up to speed on any and all necessary basics to start making massive contributions to a field. Einstein's an extreme case. Think of all the Einsteins we've missed out on over the centuries, or think of all the people, you know, the (laughs) relatively dim-witted people, quote unquote, who are merely one in a thousand or one in a million intellects. Mm -hmm. All of those people are going to be in a position or one in a hundred top cognitive one percent. These are brilliant, brilliant people and millions and millions of people who are cognitive top one percent may not even have access to literacy right now. That's all going to change. And all those brilliant minds that are left out of the conversation and the ability to contribute, they're all going to be contributing. So I think we as a species um, have gotten incredibly smart over the next 30 years. And as more and more brains get online and more and more of those outlier brains, uh, fewer and fewer of them get missed by the system, it's really just going to be an extraordinary development. So the internet also brings with it some challenges. We've got some security risks and the idea of privacy going forward is something that we need to be concerned about, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's a terrible risk. Um, you know, the, the, the amount of damage that you know a bad guy could do to your credit rating, your banked wealth, and your reputation 30 years ago again, um, 1989, was pretty limited because they would need highly physical access to you and your records. And so that just wasn't something that we had to worry about. And now we're in a situation in which these idiotic companies that are in charge of our our, our credit ratings are handing out hundreds of millions of social security numbers in a single, you know, security glitch. So th- that, you know, security is a terrible issue and, and privacy is eroding rapidly. And personally, I'm less afraid of the United States government being fascinated by me and watching me carefully. I'm much more worried about what some people have called not big brother, but little brother. Dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who might be, you know, nearby. And, you know, like I imagine 10 years from now, it'll be a trivial thing with the iPhone of 10 years hence to sit in a car at, let's say, a Starbucks, point a tiny little lapel microphone at somebody 50 feet away and record everything they say. 
And if they say something that's politically unfashionable, let's say, or if they reveal, you know, some minor secret that could be devastating if the wrong person heard about it. Wow. That's that to me is scarier uh, than the United States government saying, hey, we're going to look at into what this podcaster is up to. In fact, so in fact, yeah, I was going to bring up that the um, <clears throat> that CFO who, who went to Chick-fil-A and just blasted on that uh, that uh, person who was taking the order. And he ended up losing his job, if you remember that from a, a couple of years ago. You know, the idea that people can grow and we've got to become um, more forgiving for people going through yeah. bad decisions. That, that'll, yeah. be, that'll be part of the, the growing effort over the, the future. I, in fact, I, yeah. I want to say that gentleman, I don't think he still has recovered, doesn't have a job. Um, yeah, there's a lot of those things. There's a, a guy named John uh, Ronson, uh, R-O-N-S-O-N wrote it interesting and at times you know he made it as playful and as funny as lighthearted as he could but also made it deeply factual a book called so you've been publicly shamed and he documents about a dozen cases where somebody said the wrong thing posted the wrong thing in almost all cases without even the slightest negative intent and a lynch mob assembled to simply destroy their lives. This is a real phenomenon. And, you know, what's so-called doxing, when somebody who is technically apt uh, decides that they intensely dislike your opinion or your public figure, mm -hmm. goes after you and, and is a good enough hacker to get access to everything, your social security number, your home address, and basically urges the world to destroy your life. That happens you know, a lot of times in the course of any given week, just not usually to Kim Kardashian, so we don't hear about it as much. All of these things are terrible concerns. And, you know, similarly, you know, when we transition from, you know, the 1920s, when lots and lots of people died of infectious diseases before we'd really honed antibiotics to the 1960s, good news, you don't have to worry about a high percentage of children uh, dying of a horrible infectious disease before age five. But bad news, we now have nuclear weapons that could destroy the entire planet within 15 minutes. With every step forward we take in technology, there can be gargantuan benefits, but there are always terrifying new drawbacks that society has never faced before. And so they seem like unlike anything before. And on a literal level, they are unlike anything before. But on a broader level, they're not because every generation faces new challenges. We are going to face our own and it's going to be a bummer, but hopefully we'll fumble through as we always have. And one of those issues you bring up in the opening chapters of After On, that's facial recognition and the ability for somebody to use technology to find out so many secrets about somebody just based on their face being in front of them. Yeah, that, so um, again, not a spoiler because this is literally the first significant scene of the book uh, and its relevance doesn't become clear until uh, a couple hundred pages later. But basically there's, there's a, a character who's in a public space in a bar wearing augmented reality glasses of the sort that we can certainly expect to see in the next five to 10 years. Glasses that will give you digital overlays of anything in the environment, all kinds of relevant information. And the software he's running has been tuned in a fairly diabolical way to reveal all kinds of embarrassing personal details, particularly about the women that he looks at. And he's using this superpower in a a somewhat diabolical way, but nowhere near as diabolical as he could and as some people will in the future. And so again, I think the presumption of privacy 
is really going to be compromised. What happens in this particular scene is anybody he looks at, you know, he can get their credit rating, he can get their legal history, he can get their relationship status if they've had humiliating stuff online. You know, the database that he's accessing and the AI that's parsing that database will bring that information up based on simple facial recognition. And facial recognition has gone from science fiction voodoo, like something that we had seemed to make absolutely no progress on over many, many decades, 10 years ago, to something that is, for powerful organizations, essentially trivial today. And, you know, what's accessible to powerful organizations will be available to every single individual, malevolent or benign, you know, in a very short period of time, because it'll basically just be available as a service you can access over the internet. And it's basically just an app in your in your story where yeah. anybody can get access to this. Essentially, all of the information that's on all the social networks, you can filter through and you can find a way to get into the lives of these people just because you're standing next to them. That is That is some frightening future that you're writing there. Yeah, and then imagine it networking. Like imagine... You know, uh, celebrities have enough of a hard time as it is, you know, preserving their privacy just to use, you know, sure. a, a tiny percentage of people. But, you know, imagine if, you know, whenever celebrity X goes into public, not only are they recognized, but there's some kind of like god awful celebrity stalking app out there that flags the entire world like, oh, Julia Roberts cited in, you know, aisle 13 at the Beverly Hills Safeway. Mm -hmm. And then everybody is notified in, you know, all of a sudden this pattern of every single step that Julia Roberts or this political dissident uh, or this politically controversial person, every step they've taken whenever they've cited in public starts getting mapped to a heat map. I mean, all these things are going to become trivially easy. Sure. And that's something I worry about a great deal. And so it is something that's explored extensively in the book. The audiobook for After On is a joy. I loved listening to all of the different voices. It's it's a full cast recording, really. How did you get yeah. so many wonderful people on board for this project? I recruited all but two of them. So um, there are two main readers who read the bulk of the book. One reads the part of the book that's set back in 2002, which is probably maybe 20% of the book, and the other reads the main parts that are set in the present day. So those are two professional, you know, audiobook readers that Random House Audio chose, or actually they put a bunch of choices in front of me, and I chose those two, and they're wonderful. We've got January and Sean, who read the main parts of the book, but then the book is populated with all these kind of unusual storytelling media. And it's me trying to replicate the way the world comes at us today. It no longer comes at us like a 19th century novel, very plodding and linearly. We're constantly being interrupted by texts, by other kinds of alerts that are coming over our system, by our own wandering attention when we're at our computer desktop and can leap off to any one of you know several hundred million sites. And so in addition to sort of the traditional narrative, uh, part of the story is told through 18 Amazon reviews uh -huh. that I've embedded in the book. Part of the story is told through SMSs and tweets. It's told through blog posts, several different bloggers with very distinctive voices. It's told through news articles that are attributed to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the San Francisco Chronicle. There is also this very strange novel within the novel, which is mysterious when it first starts cropping up. And 
if I ever finished that novel, there's basically seven or eight or nine excerpts in After On of this secondary novel. If I ever actually wrote more than the excerpts and finished that novel, I'm quite convinced it would be the single worst science fiction novel <laughs> ever written. Um, and this is the way the world comes at us. So I ended up with all these fun little additional voices and it occurred to me, wouldn't it be fun to cast different people to read this? And so for the Amazon reviews, I um, happen to know this brilliant comedian named John Hodgman, who's mm-hmm. also an actor, who's also a writer. Um, and who was the narrator you know, for your audiobook yeah. from your first book, Year Zero. For, yep, he read my first book in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And he read these these Amazon reviews. People might remember him from a lot of things. I mean, he's been on you know, a lot of popular shows. He was on Board to Death. He was in Battlestar Galactica. But a lot of people remember him. He used to play, and if you remember the old I'm a Mac, I'm a PC commercials that yes. Apple did about eight or nine years ago, he played the embodiment of the PC and a little bit of a Bill Gates doppelganger. Yes. So <laughs> he, he was perfect for the Amazon reviews. Um, a very, these- very adored and well-known fantasy writer named Patrick Rothfuss um, is a buddy of my, I, I've, I know him a bit, but my wife knows him better through sort of gaming circles. He's involved in a lot of fantasy games. My wife's very involved in the video game world. He ended up reading this sort of fake novel with a novel in this intensely comedic way. And I knew him well enough that he has, you know, that needed to be read with comedic heft and also a lot of bombast. And I know that he has this sort of playful voice that he can use for that. Uh, there's sort of a, a geek heroine named Felicia Day, mm-hmm. uh, who's, you know, been on all kinds of TV shows and had this wonderful online web series called The Guild, which was wildly popular for a number of years. And she's currently the mad scientist on Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix. Exactly. She's now on the new Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, She's the voice of one of the bloggers. So I just recruited a bunch of people that were, you know, kind of, you know, friends and associates. Tom Merritt is on it. Tom Merritt is the voice um, of the New York Times. A newsreader? Uh, a Tom Merritt sounding like a newsreader? I, I, he, that's a stretch for Tom, isn't right? Isn't that a stretch? <laughs> Leo Laporte is the voice of the San Francisco Chronicle. So, um, he knows a little bit about San Francisco. Let, let's talk real quick about the the Amazon reviews because yes. they are they are very, very funny with lots of suggestive language at, at times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's a funny story behind those. So the Amazon reviews start popping into the book fairly early. And like this mysterious second novel, when they first come in, it's a little you're a little bit like, well, what is this and why are these here? But gradually over the span of the book, it starts becoming clearer and clearer why they're there, who wrote them and why. And it ties very deeply into the storyline, although in both cases, it's well into the second half of the book before all the pieces fall into place. So initially you're reading these Amazon reviews and it's in the part of the book that's set back in 2002 and they're kind of nuts. They're, they're written by this guy named Charles Henry Higginsworth III of Boston, Massachusetts. And he's interviewing these, he's reviewing rather these odd products and he'll get about, you know, typically a third of the way into a review and then he'll just do this 180 and start complaining about his life. And through that, this autobiography emerges and we find out that Mr. Higginsworth lives in Boston. He's from a family that used to have a whole bunch of money, but it's all gone. But there's still this crumbling mansion on Beacon Hill that he can't really maintain. He can't even afford heating oil for it. So he's always buying these home wiring kits and (laughs) 
you know, because he can't afford a car, an electrician and causing local blackouts. And <laughs> you know, he's got this young wife named Carlotta and they've got these young twins and they really love each other. He's got this earlier wife with whom he's got an adult daughter. And just all this comes out of the reviews, right? This is all and, in uh, the text of these Amazon reviews, which is just magical writing. Uh, who's the author of these Amazon reviews, Rob? Uh, that's me. Yes. Uh, that's, <laughs> That's an early version of me. So I actually wrote these reviews back in, you know, approximately the dates that are attributed to them. Some of them are, I moved a month or two, but I wrote these things back in 2002, 2003, which is when that part of the book is set. And you really and posted these running, on Amazon. Uh, on Amazon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I wrote these things as Charles Henry Higgins III. the <laughs> third. And um, the context was I was an internet entrepreneur at that point. I was running this company, this music service called Rhapsody, uh, which was basically the first Spotify. So we were mm -hmm. a legal online music service. We were the first company to get full catalog licenses from all the major record labels, even before Apple got them. And it, running it was an adventure. It was also very stressful. I had never really managed more than one and a half people. And now I've got 200 people working for me. So my, my method of therapy late at night, I always had wanted to be a fiction writer. So I got this sort of silly idea that I am going to write fiction. I'm going to write it through these Amazon reviews and tell the crazy story that I've just shared about this imaginary character. And so that was just sort of like this little joke. I was, you know, playing more or less on myself. It was my way of you know, blowing off steam in the wee hours as during my day job was this very stressful job as an entrepreneur. And all these years later, when I started writing this book, I, um, I realized I need a character who plays a certain role, who has a certain perspective, has a certain relationship with two younger characters in the book, kind of mentoring relationship. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I need Mr. Higginsworth. <laughs> and I've got all these reviews. And better yet, they're up on Amazon with dates that align with the book. Nice. Uh, and by the way, there's another, um, there's several dozen reviews on Amazon that didn't make it into the book. So if you like Mr. Higginsworth, there's, there's quite a bit more to be read out on Amazon.com itself. That's serendipity when you find a character that you already have in your pocket and you needed that character, that piece of the puzzle for the narrative. Yeah, it's fun. And people don't necessarily know that, so they think it's kind of like Boyhood, the movie, which they filmed over <laughs> decades, right? It's like, gosh, he's been working on this thing for so long. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of. You're, you're continuing your examination of all of these issues of the modern tech community in your podcast, which is also called After On. You've spoken with some of the greatest minds in so many industries. Who, who should we uh, be listening to on your podcast? Well, there's as as we're speaking here, I believe I have 25 episodes up there, and they really run the gamut. And I'd say, based on your interests, and so the tagline of the podcast is "Unhurried Conversations with Thinkers, Founders, and Scientists." And so there is a tech and science bent, and I also do talk to entrepreneurs. Uh, so that's our founders, but they're they're all you know pretty much invariably founders of things that are related to technology. So people who are interested, let's say, in synthetic biology and life sciences and what may soon happen to extend our health span or our lifespan or annihilate us all with a terrible evil virus, um, they might be interested in listening to a gentleman named George Church, uh, which was two episodes back. George is arguably the world's leading bioengineer. He has co-founded over 20 companies. Um, he runs a very large and incredibly productive lab at Harvard, which is a synthetic biology lab. 
he co-invented this technology called CRISPR, which is very big even in the mainstream press now, which is used to edit DNA. And our conversation is a pretty sweeping overview of what synthetic biology is. How is DNA sequencing different from DNA editing, which is different from DNA synthesis, which is different from DNA assembly? We lay all that out very clearly, and then we get into the really wild things that this could enable. Also, in this domain of genomics, there's a very interesting interview with a, a gentleman named Robert Green, who's also at Harvard, and he talks extensively about what we can do with our personal genomes. And there's a lot of great stuff that can come from looking into our personal genomes. There's some scary stuff as well. Uh, there's also an interview with a person named Andrew Hessel, who's a synthetic biology expert out of Autodesk. So those are three things in the field of SynBio. Somebody who's interested in robotics should certainly listen to the interview with Rodney Brooks, who is arguably the world's leading roboticist. Uh, Rodney started the company iRobot, which invented the Roomba, mm -hmm. uh, which invented the iPack, which is the military robot that defused untold thousands of improvised explosive devices in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's in, he started a newer company called Rethink Robotics. And by the way, these are long conversations. They are often, you know, an hour and a half long. And they're very carefully structured and carefully edited. So you listen to any of these, you can learn an enormous amount. There's lots of neuroscientists, people interested in consciousness, uh, where consciousness may lead. Uh, so it really is topic dependent. And I have yet to post an interview that I haven't been intensely proud of. I work very, very hard on getting guests who have a great deal to say with an enormous amount of authority and then doing dozens of hours of preparation to really get the gems out. So um, I'd encourage anybody to go to afterdashon.com. The first thing you'll see front page is a scroll of all the guests, all the topics, and just find what rocks your world. Besides the, the website, is there um, a way that our listeners can find out more about the projects you're working on and things that you you're, have of interest? Yeah, so I um, I have a Twitter feed where I announce all my new episodes. It's Rob underscore Reed, and it's R-E-I-D. Uh, the website is really the nexus of everything because the new episodes get posted there. There's stuff about each and every one of my books up there. There's my own little bio. So the website is a good place to go. And I'm, I've got a, a Facebook profile, a public profile that I kind of half maintain right now. But I'd say if you go anywhere, follow me on Twitter for sure because there's always stuff going up there. And definitely check out the website. And then really just subscribe to the podcast, which is easy to do in any smartphone, any podcasting app. It's called The After On Podcast. And uh, I'm sure most folks who actively listen to podcasts, which is everybody is listening now, That's right. uh, probably knows how to subscribe on their own particular app. And you started up your Patreon page, so you've, you're trying to make this economically viable, this idea of talking to these amazing intellects around the world. And you can go to patreon.com slash Rob Reed and be a part of all of that. Our patrons on our Patreon page got a copy of your book, After On, this week as one of the perks. And, cool. and the rest of our listeners, you can go to afteron.toomuchscrolling.com and pick up a copy of After On. I, I really highly recommend this book. I, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to hear Rob Reed tell us all about these characters. Listening to the audiobook with all of these wonderful characters that you've written, thank you so much for this work and thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it a ton. It's been a lot of fun. 
grow with it. We are so excited for the end of the school year. We got, what, 40 days worth of school left to go, 28 of them in school, and then there's some weekends in between. It depends upon where you live in the country, Steve. Sure. Sir, but um, yes, they, they are for, for our area. Um, the kids are, it's, it's, the countdown is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the countdown, but the kids are certainly in countdown mode at this point. If, in the Chicago land, they're just praying it gets warm. Yeah. <laughs> They've got sunlight. They just need some warmth. (laughs) Hoping for the best on the warmth. But we have a a wonderful idea. We are going to read a book together. This is our Too Much Scrolling end of the school year homework assignment. We are going to read Renee by Jessica Eyes together and discuss it on May 22nd. Now, this is a time travel book mm-hmm. and so that that gets uh steve really really I excited we'll definitely read it and uh we, we're reading it right now and you can read it right off the kindle right. app or if you need a paper uh version you can you can just order it through amazon have it delivered to you as of this moment the the kindle edition is 2.99 so i would really recommend that you go to renee.toomuchscrolling.com and pick up the kindle edition right now and get reading that's right and, and it's a uh it's a wonderful read you get through the first chapter and then you write into that story mm-hmm. and then um we're going to discuss this we're if we're going to be uh sending your questions to the author mm-hmm. and we're going to host schedule the author to be able to talk about this Mm -hmm. Uh, but this looks very exciting Um, so we've had good luck with these in the past and uh, i hope you enjoy this one also i have gone ahead and sent all of our patrons on our patreon page a copy of renee so they can read along with us and they can give us their feedback on this wonderful book you can become one of them you can go to our patreon page patreon.com slash too much scrolling just pledge an amount and uh we we just throw stuff at you there you go (laughs) we're gonna throw things at you sometimes a free book in fact i throw candy at kids yes you do i do is career day coming up? Is that coming up? It is. Oh, I got boy. I got the email. I'm I'm going over to Steve's um, uh, school and not torture these kids, but anyway, they have to sit with me for a, a period of time, and I get to talk with them. That's right. That's good <laughs> stuff. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think, Chip? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. I think we've got a plenty of plans. We got a countdown. We want to thank Rob Reed for coming in and talking to us about his book After On. You can find that on our. Amazon page. Go to afteron.toomuchscrolling.com. Pick up a copy of that book. It is so wonderful. It's so good. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. And thank all of you for listening to us. If you need more information, you can give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. The internet is our friend. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much much scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflow. We'll see you in the future. Just